Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, so welcome back to our Wednesday night Bible study. This is the last Wednesday night Bible study of 2022. Uh, The next time we meet, it'll be 2023, which is really weird to say. Um, As you know, we're making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And tonight we make our, uh, made our way to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through uh, 20. And our title is A Right View of Scripture. Now, you can tell from the title, this is a part one. Uh, We are not going to, these are only four verses, but we're not going to get through it uh, tonight. In fact, we'll probably be here for about three weeks. Uh, This is probably one of the most important statements that Jesus ever made. It's certainly one of the most incredible statements that he's ever made, and he's made a lot of important ones. But but for, this is this is I just can't stress enough how important the statement is that Jesus makes uh, here tonight. So we don't want to hurry through it. We're just going to kind of take an overview of it tonight. I've got a single point that I really want to make, and then we'll come back next week and the week after, and we'll dig into this uh, a little bit further uh, about what he means. So let's begin by reading our scripture. These, of course, are the words of Jesus. And he said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is Accomplished. Now, let me, before I read further, let me explain for those of you that may not know what that means. An iota is the ninth letter of the Greek alphabet. Okay? If you read the King James Version, it says not a jot or a tittle. A, a jot is a Hebrew letter. It's the smallest Hebrew, it's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And a tittle is a uh, the best way to explain a tittle is think about the, le- the capital letter E and the capital letter F. What's the difference between the two? One little tittle, one little mark. You see, Jesus is saying, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one single letter, not one single dot, not one single little mark will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In 1974, a guy by the name of Harold Berman, he was a professor of law at Harvard University, smart guy. Uh, he was, te- you know, obviously he's teaching law at Harvard, so he's teaching the, the future business and government leaders of America. 
1974, he wrote a book called The Interaction of Law and Religion. And the reason he wrote the book, because he was noticing something in our culture and in our nation in 1974. And by the way, that, let me just, that was, what, 48 years ago, almost 50 years ago now? Um, he was noticing that there was a decline in respect or confidence in our country, both for the law and for religion. And he got to wondering how these two are related. Is it just a coincidence that, that as the respect for law is reclining, uh, declining, also respect for religion? Was that just a, a, a coincidence, or are these two related? And his conclusion was that absolutely they're related, that you cannot have law without religion, because religion actually provides the foundation for our laws. He went on to say this, our law and religion in this country will either stand together or law and religion in this country will fall together. Now, you have to ask the question, well, why is that? I mean, that, that, you know, you can't just accept that. Why, why are these two so closely related? Well, this was his conclusion. Laws that are not based on a higher standard can never command authority. Let me give you an example. Let's say a guy steals something and he gets caught and he's taken before the judge and the judge says, man, uh, you've been caught stealing, that's against the law, that's wrong, um, and, and you got anything to say for yourself. And the man says, well, who says it's wrong? Who, who are you to say that stealing is right or stealing is, is wrong? And the judge says, well, wait a minute, son, we... We base our laws upon the law of God. We base our laws upon a higher authority. The Ten Commandments, by the way, says thou shalt not steal. So our laws are founded on a higher authority. Are you with me? I mean, look at the same example. Let's take religion. Let's take law. Let's ta I mean, religion and, and morality and Scripture and God out of the picture. The same guy gets caught stealing. He's brought before the judge. The judge says, well, you've been caught stealing. That's wrong. It's against the law. You got any things to say for yourself? And he says, yeah, judge, why is it, why is it wrong? Who, who's to say that stealing is wrong? Why? Now what's the judge going to say? Well, you see, laws that are not based on a higher authority, they're just arbitrary. They're just capricious. They're just... They're just hunches. They're just guesses. They're not based on anything higher than themselves. In fact, Harold Berman in his book said this, if law is merely an experiment, if judges are just making decisions based on guesses, why should anybody obey those laws? Especially if they don't conform to their own interests. And he's right. It's worth noting, by the way, that what he said in his book is exactly what our founding fathers said. Uh, when I mean founding fathers, I'm talking about the men that wrote our Constitution. They believe, very strongly believe, that America would not and could not survive if her people are not religious. In fact, I could give you a quote from George Washington from his farewell address in 1796. I could give you a quote from James Madison. But the most famous quote is this one from John Adams in 1798. He said this, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. 
See, if you read the Constitution, it says these rights are given to us by who? By God. In other words, it, it, it calls on a higher authority. But if you don't believe in a higher authority, then the Constitution is just, it was just something that's just made up by some men a couple, 250 years ago. Why couldn't we just redo it? We could, we, you know, maybe we've progressed far enough now that that old stuff we can just... You see what I'm saying? When you throw away the higher authority, you lose respect for the laws that are right. They, they can't command uh, authority. Now, by the way, let me just say this. Those men, talking about uh, George Washington and, and James Madison and John Adams, they were against a state-imposed religion. By the way, I am too. I don't want any government telling me how to worship God. See, I think sometimes we always say, well, if we just had more Christians in government, more Christians in government, I think we forgot something. You see, when the pilgrims fled England, they weren't fleeing a Buddhist government. They weren't fleeing a Muslim government. They weren't even fleeing an atheist government. They were fleeing a Christian government that said, you worship this way, and if you don't, we'll burn you at the stake. I don't want any government telling me how to worship God. That's between me and Him. Okay, I don't want that. Okay, and they didn't want that, and they did the right thing. What they did is say, we're going to give you the freedom to worship the way you want to worship. So certainly the Constitution is not a religious document, and we should never consider it to be so. But that certainly doesn't mean that our religion should have no influence on our morality and on our laws. Okay? But that's exactly what has happened in this country. Professor Thomas Frank at New York University said this, Law has become undisguisedly a pragmatic human process. It is made by men and it lays no claim to divine origin or to, or to eternal validity. What he's saying is our judges today, especially at the federal level and at the Supreme Court level, they're no longer reaching decisions based on a higher authority. They've taken God out of the picture. They've taken, uh, uh, you know, thousands of years of morality out of the picture. They've taken Scripture out of the picture. And basically, they're just coming to these problems and they're just guessing. They're just experimenting. They're just doing whatever fits the culture. The best example of this, there's plenty of examples, but one of the best is the Obergefell versus Hodges decision in 2015. Where these men, this is the decision, of course, that legalized gay marriage. And these men went into, men and women went into a room, and instead of looking to God and what God's definition of marriage was, instead of looking to Scripture and what Scripture's definition of marriage, instead of looking at thousands of years of history and what people thought marriage was, they, they put all that aside and they looked into a constitution and just came up with something that wasn't there. Just clearly invented it. That's what we're seeing because they're not relying on a higher authority. And what we're doing as people, we're losing respect for them. We're losing respect. Where did they come up with that? Where did they come up with that? That's why you'll have one federal judge on one side of the country say that's right and another federal judge on another side of the country say no, that's wrong. And judge overturns judge, overturns judge, because they've thrown God, they've thrown Scripture, they've thrown all that out of the... And they're just guessing. They're just guessing. You see, when we divorce ourselves from a higher truth, we're stuck with relativism. Now, by the way, we, we, we studied this in detail earlier this year in our, when we went through our study 
on relevant cultural topics. What is relativism? Relativism is the belief that there are no unchanging moral absolutes, that all truth is just relative to the circumstances. And by the way, please don't, don't kid yourself. The vast majority of Americans are relativists. They just decide truth based on their circumstances. One day they're against homosexuality, and they'll tell you they're against it until their kid comes out. And all of a sudden, they're not against it anymore. That's relativism. That's changing your beliefs. That's changing your definition of truth based on your circumstances. So you cannot build a consistent legal system on a changing principle of what is right and what is wrong. That's obvious, right? You can't just keep, you know, what if our culture in 50 years decides that uh, being a pedophile is legal? Does that make it right? Of course it doesn't. But this is where we are in our country. Now, you may say to me, well, that's an interesting conversation. I agree with all that you're saying, but what in the world does that have to do with us here tonight? Well, here's the thing. If the very fabric of our country is coming apart, and I believe it is, if the very fabric of our country, our our legal system is coming apart because we've abandoned a belief in a higher authority, Why do you think that's any different for your life and my life? Why do you think it's any different than in our life if we abandon a belief in a higher authority? What do you think is going to happen to our life? The very fabric of our life will begin to come apart. You see, there's some questions in front of us. (coughs) Excuse me. Is there absolute truth? Is there an unchanging standard that we are to live by? Is there a final authority that we will answer to. Let me tell you, those questions are incredibly important for America. They're incredibly important for our legal system. But let me tell you, it pales in comparison to how important those are to you as an individual. Because you're going to... America itself is not going to stand before God. People will stand before God. That's what we have to be careful of. (coughs) Excuse me. You see, America used to believe that the Bible was the answer to those questions, but not anymore. People today want to reinterpret the Bible. They want to deny its authority. (coughs) Excuse me, how many of y'all have ever seen quotes like this? People will say something like, well, you know, the Bible's just out of touch with our modern times. It's just out of touch. You know, it might have been true back then. (coughs) Excuse me but not anymore. Or when you actually show... See, the Bible says right here, they'll say, well, that's your interpretation. But I would interpret that differently. Now, listen, I expect that from the world. But the sad thing, the sad thing, is that I'm hearing it from the church. That's the sad thing. I'm hearing that, that believers no more, don't anymore hold a high regard for the Word of God. I I run into people who claim to be Christian, yet they don't believe the truths of the Old Testament. (coughs) For example, they don't believe in creation, that God created the heavens and the earth. If they do, they don't believe He did it in six days. They don't believe there was a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. They don't believe there was a flood that, that covered the earth. They don't believe that the Bible is completely true. 
And by the way, when they do that, they're flatly denying what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. They're flatly denying what Jesus said. In fact, they're calling him a liar. Some people believe, and this is hard to believe, but it's true. Some people believe that Scripture is trustworthy when it comes to the gospel. They'll say something like, hey, I, I believe that uh, Jesus is the Son of God. I, <coughs> excuse me, I believe He's, my, he's come uh, to be my Savior. I believe He's forgiven my sins. I believe all that. But all that stuff about sin, sexuality, all that Old Testament stuff, I, I just don't think that applies to our culture anymore. I, I believed in Jesus, but that all that other stuff, those, those sexual ethics in the Bible, I just don't believe that applies to us anymore. You see, here's the question that faces us at River of Life. Here's the question that faces our country, our state, our, our, our families as we go into 2023. Does the Bible represent the absolute final, and I underline that word, unchanging? Is the Bible unchanging? You see, guys, what you or I think, I'm going to be really blunt with you, I don't really care. It don't matter what you think. It don't matter what I think. There's only one opinion that matters, and that's what does Jesus think? What does Jesus think about Scripture? See, this is why our passage tonight is so important. Because Jesus is standing on a mountainside or sitting on a mountainside facing people. And those people believe that he's going to do away with the Old Testament. They believe that that he's going to do away with the principles that are stated in the Old Testament. They think it's going to go away. He's going to lower the standard. The God of the Old Testament, he's gonna, it, it's going to be different. By the way, that's exactly what people think today. It's exactly what they think today. Oh, that's Old Testament. But, the, you know, that God that, that destroyed cities and nations because of sin, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not around anymore. He, he turned from a God of justice into a God of love. He loves us. That, 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 that God in the Old Testament that said those things are an abomination, he don't believe that anymore. He's changed his principles. He's, he's lowered his standards. That's exactly what people think today. And these are the words of Jesus. Don't think that. Don't you think that? What did he say? Not one letter. Not one little dot. Not any of it will go unfulfilled. I'm not abolishing. I'm not abrogating. I'm not annulling one little piece of it. In fact, he says... If you teach anyone to disobey one of the least commands of that scripture, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's as clear as it gets. See, that's Jesus' view of scripture. That's Jesus' view of the Old Testament. Folks, listen to me. I want to think what Jesus thinks. You don't want to be caught on judgment day thinking differently than Jesus. Whatever he thinks about the Bible, that's what you need to think about the Bible. Paul tells us we have the mind of Christ. We're supposed to think like Christ. 
So I want to, that's all I need to know is what he thinks about Scripture. That's what I want to think about it. Now, I want to give you some context as we come to our passage tonight. And uh, I'm going to give you, we, I do this all the time. Listen, I'll be honest with you. You can pretty much pull any Scripture out of the Bible by itself, and you can make it mean just about anything you want to make it mean. Anybody can do that. You have to look in context. And what I mean by context is, why did a person say what they said when they said it? What was the context? Why did Jesus say these words at the time that he said it? What, what, what was his point? What was he trying to get across in context of his other words? Uh, I'm going to give you two different views of this. The first one I'm going to give you is a historical context. Now, I want you to, you know, we just came out of Christmas. And, um, you know, if you go read the book of Luke, and I'm sure many of you read the Christmas story uh, this Christmas season. If you go read the book of Luke and, and, and of course, the book of Matthew, you read a lot about the, the Bethlehem and the angels and the shepherds and all the stuff that happened with Mary and Joseph and all that. So we get a lot of information about Jesus at his birth. And then about 12 years go by and we get one little snippet where his, his family, when he's about 12 years old, they go to the temple and they lose track of him for a few days and they, they finally find him and he's in the temple at 12 years old debating with some of the greatest uh, uh, biblical scholars of that day. And then after that, 18 years go by, we don't hear anything. Until he's about 30 years old, he's baptized by his cousin John in the River Jordan. He choose, calls his disciples, he goes to a wedding at, at uh, a place called Cana, and he turns water into wine, and boom, his ministry is off and running. And, and if you read the Gospels, all the Gospels, you, you know, most of the Gospels are centered around, centered around those three years of his ministry. But one thing I'm not sure you and I really understand is how different Jesus was from all the other religious leaders when he came on the scene. He didn't act like other religious leaders, and he didn't talk like other religious leaders. For example, he comes on the scene, and he's teaching, and his humility and his meekness immediately set him apart from all of these religious leaders of Israel who are proud, and they're boastful, and they're self-aggrandizing, and they're hypocritical. Jesus is, he's not like that at all. He's meek and he's humble. He doesn't act like them. He refuses to identify himself with any of the religious sects of that day. For example, he, he won't align with the Pharisees. He won't align with the Sadducees. He won't align with the Zealots. He just will not get into their little groups. He won't do it. He's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. And, and, and of all things, he lets them touch him. And he'll even go into their house and sit down and have dinner with them. That's not like any of the other religious leaders of that day. He's completely different. And he disregards and completely ignores all of their traditions and all of their legalistic rules that they had. Now, I want to take just a moment here to explain this, because this is important. Back in the Old Testament, Moses, God through Moses, had given Israel 613 commands that they had to follow, 613 laws. 
And you, somebody has gone back in the Old Testament and you can find them in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, and somebody counted them out and they come to 613. And they're divided into three areas. Uh, ceremonial, which is how you deal with God. Civil, which is how you deal with other people. And of course, moral laws like thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, those types of things. And, we're, and we'll talk about these more next week and how the different roles were, or different laws were fulfilled in Jesus. But for now, you've got 613 laws that you've got to keep. Now, as the time goes by, as centuries roll by, the Jews, men like the scribes and the Pharisees, they had added literally thousands more. And these were known as the traditions of the elders. Let me give you a scripture, Matthew 15, 1 through 2. It says, Some Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, here's the thing. You can go back to the Bible, and there's nothing in the Bible telling you that you have to wash your hands before you eat. That's not one of the rules that they, that they had. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to wash your hands before you eat. And I see all the little kids saying, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But the Jews had added the law, and Jesus just completely ignored it. Just completely ignored it. And they saw it. They said, why aren't, you, why aren't y'all washing your hands? You're ignoring the traditions of the elders. He did that on purpose. He just completely disregarded all these rules they got. Now, here's the thing. Why would anybody, if God had given you 613 commands, why would anybody in their right mind add 2,000 more or 3,000 more or 4,000 more? Why would they do that? Here's why. Let's say that you believe that the only way you're going to go to heaven is by keeping the law. Okay? You, you believe that. You, I got to keep the rules, man. It's the only way I'm going to go to heaven. You got a real problem because the law isn't that detailed. It's not that detailed. So at the end of the day, how do you know for sure that you're keeping it? You can't. So what they did is they tried and create a rule for every type of person in every situation to make sure they were covered. Let me give you an example. This is one of the commands that God gave them. Exodus 20, verses 8, to 8 through 10. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. By the way, the word holy just means set apart or different. So God says, I want you to take that seventh day and I want you to keep it holy. Set it apart from me. And then he says this, on that day, and here's the law, you shall do, don't, not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your male or your female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your town. So here's the law. Remember the Sabbath day, don't do any work. All right, does anybody see the problem there? What's the problem? What's work? That's kind of vague, Right? I mean, what's work? So they sat down and they started debating it. Well, what's, what's work? And they decided, well, one way of working is you carry a burden, right? So you see, you see people over in the Middle East, like women in the Middle East, and they'll carry things on their head, right? They're carrying a burden. Or you see people carrying big piles of things on their back. They decided that work is carrying a burden. 
Okay. Anybody see the problem with that? What's a burden? Is it a, obviously if I picked up a big pile of rocks, that might be a burden, but what about if I want to pick up my child? What if I wanted to pick up a, a lamp on, from one table and move it to the other side of the room? So you can see what they started happening. They started chasing rabbits. And they started having to come up with all these laws. This is what they decided. They decided you could carry enough food equal to the weight of a dried fig. This, this is real stuff. I ain't making this up. You could carry enough food, but it could only be the weight of a dried fig. You could carry enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Milk, enough milk for one swallow. Enough honey to put on a wound. Enough water to moisten your eye. Only enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet. Now, that's pretty bad, right? It gets worse. Somebody, let's look at that last one. You could only carry enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet. And somebody said, well, what if I, what if I write in the sand with my finger? Does that count? What if I write with uh, apple juice? Seriously. So I want to give you some. These are actual scribal letters here. He who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right or with his left hand, whether of one kind or of two kinds, if they're written with different inks or in different languages, he's guilty. So if you write two letters, but you wrote one letter in Greek and the other letter in Hebrew, that's a sin. Whether he's written them with ink or with paint, red chalk, vitriol, or anything that makes a permanent mark. So if you're writing them permanently, that was a sin. You couldn't do more than two letters. And they had to be the same alphabet. He goes on. If anyone writes with dark fluid, fruit juice, or the dust of the road, or in sand, or anything which doesn't make a permanent mark, then you're not guilty. If he writes one letter on the ground and one on the wall, or two on the pages of a book so they can't be read together, he's not guilty as long as they're separated. This, folks, listen. And I, I honestly, could a man lift a lamp? Could a man uh, lift his child? What about a tailor if he walked outside and he forgot a pen was in his coat? Was that a sin? What about artificial teeth? What about an artificial limb? They had laws for all of that, what you could do, what you couldn't do. Could a woman wear a brooch or a wig? They, they decided yes, but only if it was not heavier than a fig. See, the problem, these things became the essence of religion. That was what religion was all about, keeping the rules. You got to keep the rules. You got to keep the rules. And all of that stuff, Jesus completely ignored. Completely disregarded it. Act like it didn't even exist. In fact, again, he, he wouldn't only ignore them. He would, sometimes he knew they were there and he would disregard them anyway. Just, just to tick them off, I think, sometimes he did that. So he doesn't, he comes on the scene and he doesn't act like all these other religious leaders who are just, man, following the rules down to the nth degree. 
And he's like, ah, just ignore all that. And these people are looking at him like, man, who is this guy? And he doesn't sound like them. See, the Pharisees are always talking about law, law, law. Jesus starts talking about things like grace and mercy. The Pharisees, are, are all they care about is enforcing the law on people. Jesus, all he cares about is forgiving people. You don't care about any of that stuff they're talking about. And see, basically, they're always putting their focus on the outside. Jesus always put his focus on the inside. Remember what he told them? He said, you're like whitewashed coffins. On the outside, it's all pretty. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. See, that, their outside was, man, follow the rules, follow the law. But inside, they were dead. And Jesus was always putting his focus on the inside. In a nutshell, he didn't echo the prevailing theology of his day. So he's sitting here on that mountainside and he's teaching. And you've you got to understand, these people cannot help but wonder, who is this man? Is he some kind of revolutionary? By the way, that's what, revolutionary, that's what revolutions do, right? Revolutions come in, they get rid of the old, and they bring in something new. And they wondered, is he a revolutionary? Is he going to get rid of the, of the Old Testament? Is he going to get rid of the law and the prophets and all the stuff that Moses gave us? Is, is he going to bring in some new thing? Is he going to take away the burden of the law? Is he going to lower the standards? Now, Jesus, standing there on that day, knew exactly what they were thinking. See, we know in other places in Scripture that Jesus always knew what men and women were thinking. For example, Matthew 12, 25, it says, "...in knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them." Luke 6, 8, it says, "...but he knew what they were thinking." That's why on this day... Standing there in front of all those people on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not think that I've come to do away with the law. Don't think because that's exactly what they were thinking. They're thinking, this guy's bringing something new. The, the Old Testament's going to be gone. We're going to get rid of all those, those laws and stuff. And this is what Jesus said, don't think that. You're thinking wrong if you think that. See, by the way, we know from ancient Jewish writings that we have access to that many Jews believe the Messiah would do away with the, with the law. Why would they believe that? Because of that scripture right there, Jeremiah 31, 31. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So they thought, a lot of them thought, man, when the Messiah comes, he's going to get rid of the old covenant and he's going to bring in, he's going to give us a new covenant. He's going to get rid of the old and bring in something new. So they thought this new covenant was going to nullify all the stuff that Moses had given them, all the stuff that the prophets had talked about, all the principles and standards that God had established in the Old Testament. They thought they were going to get rid of them, but they were wrong. So right here in these four verses, Jesus answers their questions and he certainly straightens out their misconceptions. Now, when he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, remember, he's not talking about all those little legalistic rules that those people made up over the centuries. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that. 
He's talking about the Old Testament. Look at Mark 7, 1 through 9. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you bunch of hypocrites? As it is written, the people on, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold on to the tradition of men. See, they had, they had left the 613 commands and they had focused on all the traditions that they had come up with and they had completely missed what God was trying to teach them all along. You see, when, when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he's not talking about that mess. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament that we have in our Bible. Now listen to what he says about the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one little letter, not one single mark will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Folks, listen to me. There are people today that think that the, this God of the Bible is somehow lowered his standards. They really think that. They think that all that stuff in the Old Testament that he said was an abomination, that somehow he's changed his mind. That's what those people on that mountain thought that day, that God was somehow going to lower his standards. Folks, Jesus didn't come to lower the standards. He came to raise them to where they always belonged. You see, the irony was they thought they were raising the standards with all those little laws. The irony was they had actually been lowering the standard for years. They had taken something that was supposed to be about the heart and they had turned it into something about following rules. You see, they had turned an internal law into an external law and Jesus was coming to drive it back inside where it belonged. That's why in Matthew 5.20, he says, I'm going to tell you this, unless you're better than them, unless your righteousness is better and more and exceeds what they do, you're not getting into heaven. See, that tells me right there, it's not about following rules. It's not about checking off a list. It's about something completely different and you and I better find out what that is or we're not getting into heaven. If I had just read this for the first time, I would be thinking, all right, I got to know, what are you talking about? That's why this scripture is so important and this is why this scripture des deserves our attention. Not to just breeze by it in 10 minutes and move on to something else because that statement right there, I mean, you can, you can feel the gravity of it even as you read it. Now, that was the historical context. Very quickly, I want to give you the sermon context. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is sitting, standing on the mountain, teaching a bunch of people. He started out, if you'll remember, in verses 3 to 12 with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. Uh, you know, blessed are... Uh, you know, we went through all these different things, right? 
And we said those describe the character of a believer. That is who we are. And then he got to verses 13 to 16, and he said, Now I want you to go out, and I want you to be the salt and light of the world. That is our purpose. So as you come to verse 17, he's told you what kind of characteristics you should have on the inside. He's told you how you should walk that out in the world. And most of us would sit here thinking at that point, I'm thinking, okay, look, I've read the Beatitudes. I've read the metaphors about being the salt and the light. How in the world am I ever going to pull that off? How in the world am I ever going to pull that off? How do we do it? This is Jesus' answer in verses 17 through 20. The Word of God. This is why it comes in the sermon where it comes. Because He's just told us who we are. He's told us how we're supposed to act out in the world. And if you're sitting there wondering, how am I ever going to pull this off? That's His answer right there. The Word of God. You see, if you and I are going to live a kingdom life, if we are going to do our best to live a life that follows Jesus and thinks like Jesus and acts like Jesus and talks like Jesus, folks, you have to build that life upon an absolute commitment to the validity of the Word of God. You have, you've got to come to that Word and say, I don't care what anybody else says. I believe this Word because Jesus said it's true. You want to be a Christian? You want to live like a Christian? You want to walk like a Christian? You cannot do it if you don't believe the Bible. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's standing there before a group of people and says, Don't think I've come to do away with that. God doesn't change. No, I've come to fulfill it. And we'll talk about that. You see, the Bible is the unchanging standard of righteousness. The Word of God gives us the guidelines and the principles and the requirements that we need to walk out, verses 3 through 16. Jesus, standing there on that day, looked at the Old Testament and said, that is the final, unchanging, authoritative Word of God. When it says He created the earth in six days, He meant it. When He said that He flooded the earth and saved eight men... Eight people, he meant it. When he says he created a first man, Adam, and and the first woman, Eve, he meant it. I, I believe it. If he says a donkey talked, I believe it. I believe it. I don't care how impossible it sounds. Because it, it, Jesus, that was a story in the Bible. And Jesus had every, he looked at that and said, not one letter of it. Not one mark of that document is wrong. Not one, not nothing in it. Believe it. Folks, I want to think like Jesus thinks. If we're going to be His followers, then we have to believe the same. Now, we got a lot to cover over the next couple of weeks. There are really three questions. I need to know, when Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the Old Testament, I've come to fulfill it. Okay, <laughs> what does He mean by that? Okay, that's important. Because there are certain things in the Old Testament that we don't do anymore, right? Um, for example, I love shrimp. The Old Testament says you cannot eat shrimp. And I eat it every chance I get, right? Um, why? How is, that, how is that law fulfilled in Jesus? We're going we're gonna to talk about that 
uh, next week, that and others. So we're going to talk about that. Number two, what does Jesus say when he says, if you go out there and you teach anyone to, to, to disobey the least of a commandment, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, what does, he, what does he mean by that? And then finally, the, what we talked about here just a few minutes ago, where he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not getting into heaven. Okay, we really need to know what that means. Because these people were fastidious rule keepers. They, they kept the law like crazy. And he says, that ain't good enough. You got to be better than that. How in the world can we do that? We'll find that out next week. Let's pray. Father, Lord, uh, we love you. We thank you for your word as we always do. What, a, what an incredible statement. And Father, I just asked uh, for River of Life here tonight and for me individually and for those of us here individually, God, that we just double down on our commitment to your word. That, Father, as we go into 2023, God, that this year is so much chaos. There's so many distractions. There's so much going around trying to pull us away to think like the world thinks, to think like our culture thinks. God, in 2023, help us more than any other year in our life to think like Jesus thinks. Help us to think like Jesus thinks, especially, especially about your holy word. God, we love you. We thank you. We're excited. Thank you for what you did this year uh, here at River of Life. And Father, we are so excited about, about what's coming this, in this year. And I, we promise, we promise that we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.